This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Lanzies, The Boundless Shades of Life. And the author is Giancarlo Gabrielli. And Giancarlo joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Carlo. Hello. Good morning. How are you? Great to have you here. Now, this is a very intense book. You're taking us right into war. You're taking us to a very, uh, into the lives of regular people that are affected, right? That is correct, yes. It's uh, the story, more or less, of a regular family in very irregular times. Yes, very irregular times. Now, before we get into the details, why write the book? Well, several reasons. One, I always liked uh, writing, and uh, I found myself uh, with uh, lots of pages, lots of books covered with notes and uh, recollections, and finally there was enough that I felt uh, I could put it into a novel. It's a novel, but um, it has uh, historical background. Many of the characters are real, and I felt compelled uh, to tell a story which uh, in terms uh, that I don't find in many other books of, uh, let us say, similar genre. So what are we looking at here? What period of time? What war are we uh, being period, brought into? Sorry, the period goes uh, from the end of the Great War to the, begin- to the end of the, w- the Second World War. But when I say the end, it's actually the passage from the Arno front line in Tuscany, in Italy. Because for that particular family, the war ended when the front moved north. So here's a family that has just experienced war, war, and war. That is correct. And uh, they had, uh, particularly after the surrender, so to speak, of the Italians and the armistice of uh, September 1943, the family finds itself... uh, in German uh, occupied territory uh, with the SS on the ground and bombing from their lives from the air. So it was a rather complicated uh, situation, you could say. Now, tell us a little bit about this family. Uh, give us their, you know, their names and uh, just give us a little background on them. Sure. The family is a you can call it a Tuscan family, although two of the people came from the very north, from north of Venice. But then they settled in Tuscany in 1924, and they were unusual because they had socialistic type of views, but not as understood in North America. Socialistic type of view versus the fascist, you know, the ideas of the fascist, regime uh, which was prevalent at the time. Mussolini had come to power in the early 20s, and so they lived through the fascist regime, suffering from his his, uh, excesses, and um, known as a family which not uh, share the view of the regime. Who is the protagonist? Who's our hero? Ah, There is two or three, I suppose. One is Riccardo Lanzi, who's the father of... um, uh, the a child which is born in the 30s and has um, married Patrizia Lanzi. Patrizia is also a protagonist insofar as when Riccardo goes to war, she is in charge of the family and she has to face many situations without the help of a man in the family. You say that good and bad people are not relegated just to one or a few countries or nationalities, one credo or one uniform. Under that harsh circumstances, human beings can be better or worse than under normal ones. Now, 
that's what you're putting them in, these very harsh circumstances, and we are part of them making very life-changing decisions. That is right, and, uh, you know, they find out, like in many other places and many other people, that uh, in similar circumstances, other human beings can behave either much better than uh, in uh, everyday normal circumstances, or their bad character is accentuated and they can behave much worse. Well, right at the opening of your book, I don't know what else to call it, but the brutality of war comes just flooding over you as you read the opening pages where there is all this death and carnage, and Ricardo, one of the heroes, finds himself in a very unusual position, probably a position he never thought he would be in, that now he's in charge. That is correct. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, because of the killing of his uh, captain, was in charge of a particular sector of the trenches, he finds himself in charge, and he's only 19. So, uh, well, he has the courage of uh, taking over the situation and make the best uh, that he can. He has to kill in order to survive, and yet the idea of killing is not normal for him, even, even as a soldier. But he understands that, and under those circumstances, he does the best to save his men, his position, and do his duty. It's always interesting me, to me how men and women rise to the occasion, and that's kind of what Ricardo does, right? Yes, and in a sense, uh, he, he, I find him an interesting character, because it's not like a person who is being brainwashed go and kick ass, go and kill, your country is the best, you are the strongest. No, he doesn't have these particular ideas in his mind, and yet, confronted by the inevitability of uh, uh, kill or you'll be killed, uh, he does what he has to do. Especially when they're literally, the, the graphic scene as you portray it is overwhelming when you think of Bodies being blown up and parts laying everywhere and the smell of blood and death. And it's, it's for, for most of us, obviously, for most readers today who have never experienced something like that, I, I right away as I read that, I said, you know, I said to myself, what would I have done? Yeah, it is a question that probably many people would or should ask themselves. Because war sometimes is judged from different places. And war, when you have your enemies, you can say your enemies, because if somebody is trying to kill you, you don't care if it is for good intention or bad intention. Your enemies are both beside you, above you, in the other side of the line, and everything else. It's a different situation from just having soldiers fighting in another country. Now, you mentioned that were, there were some other heroes. Tell us about, uh, give us a little character description of some others. Sure, because although the book starts uh, with uh, a couple of violent uh, war scenes, and, uh, and although the book is uh, placed in an era where war and conflict prevail, and lots of it uh, is not uh, really uh, dedicated, lots of the pages are not dedicated to war and fighting. There is lots of other scenes. And one of these scenes um, is uh, the grandmother, uh, Louisa is her name, refusing to, com- to put out a flag because the fascists wanted it out. And in another scene, they come to collect a copper jug because they were making bullets from uh, a kitchen and household utensils. And uh, she had an antique uh, copper jug, and she had already contributed to others. But they wanted that one because somebody, a fascist neighbor, had told them that she had one more copper jug. This was an antique. It was so beautiful, and it was one of the few things, if not the only one, that she had saved from the ruins of a house when the war front was up north on the previous war. Well, she goes to the attic, and she throws 
she throws it down at them, and it smashes on the ground. So she says, you said you wanted to use it for bullets. Well, it smashed the picture. It's good enough for bullets. And in her mind, she goes, but you won't be able to resell it or keep it for yourself. She has, uh, she has no problem in uh, stating her own point of view, although she was living in very dangerous times. Now, you also talk about uh, different scenes uh, in, in your book, and you have one idyllic or descriptive of the environment. Why did you call it idyllic? Is it idyllic? It is. It is. Um, in a sense, um, because some of my description of the environment or a love scene or whatever, I, I, I still have, uh, I'm still, I grew up imbued uh, into the romanticism of, uh, you know, the Renaissance, etc., etc. And sometimes, since uh, English is not really my, it's not my first language, as you can hear from my accent, I go back uh, into mentally translating what I would have said uh, in Italian. So it's idyllic because uh, even though 10 minutes before bombs uh, might have fallen down, then uh, the sun shines, the sky is blue, the wind uh, uh, blows uh, and you, and you smell a scent of flowers, and, uh, you know, and your soul is revitalized. And you think in terms of uh, poetry and music and, and things like this. Always yearning for the better, I guess, when you're thrown into such uh, violent times, uh, you, you grasp those moments of sanity and of beauty uh, very quickly. That, that is right. They reinvigorate and think that, uh, you know, life is not all bad after, you, after all you have survived, and now you should enjoy the best of life. There must be a love story in this book. Yes, there is a couple. <laughs> one is between the two uh, older protagonists, and one is the first scent of love that uh, the Roberto, the son, now around uh, 13 he falls in love with a beautiful girl who has found refuge or shelter, I should say, in a country, in a farm, in the farm, to escape from the bombing of the cities. Now, you talk about government and its political purposes. Uh, does this come out in, in the book as well, as how government can exploit and deceive its own people? Um, yes and no. Uh, mainly... I suppose the irony or the sarcasm comes out, uh, uh, you know, to, to see a country as unprepared as Italy to enter the war, and uh, in the contrast of thinking between the protagonist and some of his uh, superior officers, etc., etc., or between the dialogue of uh, the older lady, the grandmother Luisa, with the fascist neighbor. Um, in that, because of the period there isn't as much of the exploitation of the people as such, just the imbecility of a government, the illusion of many people who thought that bayonets, and bayonets one was, one of, uh, was one of the terms of um, uh, Mussolini, that bayonets were sufficient to fight against tanks and airplanes. It was the anachronistic view of... Uh, the government, or the high officers, the general, etc., etc. Are you trying to make some statement about the futility of war, or the... Yes. Yes, so tell us, you know, kind of, uh, we've got a couple minutes here, give sure. us some cl concluding thoughts uh, about that and about your book. Well, the futility of war, insofar as, uh, you know, if you look at history, we never solved the uh, very much, and also the danger of uh, imbuing uh, your, your own people, and I say your own people regardless of which country they come from, with the idea that they are superior and that uh, killing can solve anything. Well, Carlo, how do we get your book? Well, I can either send it to you or you get it through iUniverse. iUniverse.com. That is correct. And you can probably... Search under the title, The Lanzies, and find it on other online bookstores yeah. as well, I'm sure. That is correct, yes. Yeah. 
Well, Carlo, we want to thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That was Giancarlo Gabrielli. He is the author of his book, The Lanzi, The Boundless Shades of Life. Listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Seasons of Salt, Meditations, and the author is Millie Horlicker, and Millie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Millie. Hello there. Well, this is a book filled with your thoughts, your understandings, your, as you say, you're not a seminary graduate, but this is all that you've experienced and learned through the years about God and how he's there to help us. Now, why did you decide to take all of these thoughts, these, as you call them, meditations, and publish them? Well, it had been on my mind for a long time, and when people would approach me about a copy of something, some sermon or devotional that I'd given, and and I would say, well, I'm going to publish a book someday. And so finally, when I had spoken in a neighboring church, in the morning prayer, the liturgist included Oh, God, be with Millie as she writes her book. And I thought, well, if someone takes it to the top, what else could I do? What else could you do with uh, that kind of a prayer but follow through? That's correct. And that's what you've done. So That's what I did. So kind of give us an overview. Now, there's this book has, my goodness, I, I don't know how many uh, meditations. What's the total count here? It's 62, I believe. 62. <clears throat> All right, and... Tell us a little bit about uh, the meditations in general, their format. Well, the format starts with uh, a scripture and then a little devotional and then closes with a prayer. So it's always based on scripture and how I have interpreted that in relationship to my daily life. And do you see this just for people doing it privately or is it more than that? I think it's equally appropriate for use in groups because they're easy to use and they're short, but they have appeal to a really large audience. And you think mostly, though, you think it's aimed at uh, Christian women? Yes, it would be primarily aimed at Christian women, but I have found that uh, spiritual growth is not limited by gender or age. So 
it's appropriate to a wide group. Of course. But why do you say it most appeal to Christian women? Well, that's, that's where most of them were originally given, although a lot of them are taken from sermons that I've given as a lay speaker. Um, but they are experiences of mine, and so they appeal to mothers and to just women in general who have these common daily experiences of family life. So how long have you been giving these in, in different churches? About 25 years. 25, yeah, 25 years, probably. I am a lay speaker, and so I'm called upon to uh, fill in when a pastor is ill or goes on vacation or whatever. Well, and you've gotten, gotten some rave reviews already from readers. Well, thank you. I wanted to read uh, a couple. Here's one from Bishop Fritz and Etta May, is it Multi? Muti. Muti. And they say, quote, These moving devotionals by Millie reflect who she is as a person, a deeply committed Christian, an advocate for justice, a compassionate friend, and a courageous woman in the face of personal loss and pain. Well, my goodness, that covers about every aspect of life. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it does. Well, we all have a lot of different aspects to our lives. We aren't just one thing all the time. That's for sure. And Dixie Brewster from the Kansas West Conference of the United Methodist Church says, quote, Millie's writing exemplifies her faithful Christian witness and delightful attitude relating to real-life experiences can give great insight into God's awesome power and I know you will enjoy this collection of inspiring stories. Well, Pretty humbling. Yeah, yeah I'm going to say, you, you can't get better <laughs> advertising than that. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty humbling. I, I appreciated that. Well, let's talk about some of your meditations. I think it would be good to uh, focus on a few so everyone gets a feel for the entire collection by just picking out a few, uh, maybe some of your favorites. You have one called... Is it called Snakes in a Potato Cave? Well, it's, the title is Chores, but it <clears throat> deals with snakes in the potato cave, yes. Okay, well, let's, let's go into detail on that meditation and give us uh, the story and the scripture and your feelings about it and why you used it. Of course, as a child, I grew up on a farm in northeast Kansas, and of course, like all farm children, always had a lot of chores to do. One of those chores was filling the potato bucket to bring up to the house, and we had a potato cave that was a little distance from the house. Now explain to everyone what a a potato cave is. The potato cave was was just a cave. It was a built cave. It had stone walls and uh, covered with earth. And so you would go down some steps into the and open the door and go into the cave, and the cave was dark except for the light coming in through the door. And, and so this was to preserve the potatoes. It was and to it, preserve the potatoes. Right, yes. in the ground, so to speak. And, yes, and, it was uh, a good temperature and, a, right. and good humidity to keep potatoes. So In large quantities. In large quantities. We grew a lot of potatoes. My dad sold them to the grocery store in town and also, of course, for our, our own large family. Too. So how old are you when, when uh, you know, you're, you're experiencing this? I would have probably, I started getting those potatoes probably at eight and continued as long as I was available uh, through high school, except that by then I was gone for long hours, and sometimes that fell to a younger sibling. So you open this door into this dark cave. You open the door and go in, and you (laughs) grope around for the potatoes. Oh, my goodness. And uh, there was quite a, you know, it depended on the time of day, but generally quite a bit of light. But there were also snakes in the cave. There were bull snakes and black snakes, which are harmless and actually... Uh, assured us that there would be no rats or mice in the cave. But I didn't like snakes, and um, I would always take with me, along with the potato bucket, a hoe so that I could defend myself against these poor defenseless snakes. (laughs) And they can get pretty big, can't they? They can get pretty big. They looked big to me. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure they did. And, And I was not ever in danger, really, but I had a good imagination, and... So I, I was able to uh, do a little heart pounding as I would gather those potatoes. But I think that's uh, indicative, too, in adult life, how we imagine dangers. And uh, God is really always with us 
and if we can keep our imaginations under control, many of the fears that we have would subside. Yes, we've been to too many movies and read too many books. Yes, I think so. <laughs> so all the monsters are always... Well, the monsters come in different ways. There you go. Yes. Too, you know, when That's you right. uh, send your children off uh, to school, when you send them off to college, when they enter adulthood, just all along the way, uh, life is full of new adventure. Let's talk about another one. Let's see. Another one is, deals with a suitcase full of unworn clothing dish yes. rags. Yes. What does that well, mean? The unworn clothing is separate from the dish rags. Oh, the the dish unworn r- clothing, um, when our oldest son went to church camp, um, we helped him pack as much as he would let us. And um, we tucked in some little surprises for him in the bottom of the suitcase for him to open during the week from his dad and I. When we picked him up and we brought him home, then I thought, well, I better do this camp laundry right away because you never know what you'll find in a suitcase when a little boy's been to camp. Might be something live, but at least it would be full of sand and perhaps wet. So I opened the suitcase and I was so surprised it hadn't been touched. Completely clean and neat. Just like you packed it. Just like we packed it and closed it. (laughs) So I I relate that to how we keep suitcases uh, closed in our lives, our talents that we don't use, uh, the gifts that God has given us that we keep tucked away for fear they'll get dirty or soiled or used. And... uh, uh, or not not just pretty tablecloths that we keep in the drawer, but the gifts that God has given us, we fail to use. You say that what you want readers to learn and take away from your book is that God is a God of love, acceptance, accountability, and grace, and that God is with us in our everyday lives. That's correct. That's that's really what I hope will. God is always with us, and and is full of grace and love. And so throughout these 62 meditations, there's a different uh, focus of one of, this, one of these important characteristics of God. Yes, that, w- that would be true. There, um, some of them emphasize one of those more than the other, but generally that's true. Well, let's talk about dish rags. Now, what is that about? Well, the dish rags refers to uh, using our gifts again, and... Um, when I was a youngster, and, and I think this was true for many growing up in limited circumstances or rural circumstances, we never called it a dish cloth. We always said dish rag, and that's what it was. It was a dish rag. We used old rags for dish cloths. Well, then when I got married and became a little citified and went to college and all of that, I began to call them dish cloths, and that was appropriate, too, because... They were purchased. I didn't use old rags anymore except to scrub. But then dishcloths become dish rags if we really use them. And that's another thing. We should use our gifts, use them up. Use them. Dish rags are to scrub uh, the dirty parts of life. And, and our tools need to be out in the world, not kept in a little drawer all safe and clean. It, it relates a lot to the same theme as the uh, suitcase, that we need to use our gifts. You say that each meditation begins with a scripture reading, then relates life's experience to the biblical message, and ends with prayer. Now, how does it end with prayer? Well, they're short little prayers that <clears throat> relate to the meditation. And again, the prayers, I hope, are acceptable universally, that they, and they can add to those prayers, of course. But uh, that gives them some sort of focus as closure to the whole meditation. And it's broken into five parts, as you call them. The first part's all in the family. The second, around the table. Third, games we played. Part four is common threads. And part five, traveling through the Christian year. Yes. And let's see, how about, this is a very obviously uh, serious and sobering one, the death of our daughter. Yes, uh, a lot of people, well, all of us experience death of loved ones, uh, unless we happen to be the first to die, but um, that's a universal experience, and it's not universal, of course, to lose a child, 
but it is an experience that many people have. And uh, all through that experience, it was a, a sudden death, a tragic accident. All through that, uh, I felt God was with me. In fact, the only scripture I could remember was Jesus wept and Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And how old was she? She was 24. 24. Well, we have something in common. We have a 20-year-old that was killed in a car accident back in the year 2000. So we, I can understand a bit. It's, it's really um, yes. something you don't, you know, it's not the natural order of things no. according to what parents think. Anyway, we should go first. And, and the only way you can get through it is with the help of God. Obviously, I felt so supported by the prayers of others. I was When you're severely injured yourself, there isn't much you can do except lay there and heal. But uh, I certainly felt buoyed by the prayers of others. You also say that this book is from one layperson to another and that you invite people to read the book with open minds and hearts. That's correct. Um, that would relate, of course, to our United Methodist slogan, Open Minds, Open Hearts, Open Doors. But it also relates to my life, I think. Uh, as we grow, we are in understanding of Scripture and our understanding of God evolves. And I think that some of these things that uh, some of the Scriptures that I use, others may not agree with. But I think when you read a Scripture, even a familiar Scripture, again, then you oftentimes have new insights uh, to even the most familiar scriptures. So I urge people to read those, even if they already have it memorized. Well, we have about a, a minute before we talk about how to get your book, Millie. Uh, give us some concluding thoughts. Well, I just hope that this book is uh, helpful to others and uh, that I, I do offer it in, with love and faith from one lay person to another or from one or to pastors or anyone it represents my own spiritual growth, my own perspective and interpretation of text of, from the Bible. And I realize that in earthly times, we, we all of us see in the mirror dimly. But I hope that this book is helpful to many. And here's a final uh, example of your fan club. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Eva McClellan, a past president of the Kansas West Conference of United Methodist Women, she says... Engaging, enchanting, excellent. Now, those three words, you don't need to say anything more. That's pretty, pretty <laughs> humbling again. Yes, a must-read, she says. Each closing prayer is a mini-masterpiece seeking, leading seekers to a deeper commitment to the call of Christ. So congratulations, Millie. Well, thank you very much. It was a joy and a journey. Now, how do we get your book? Well, you can get it uh, on the Internet. You can get it from, I have a website, uh, seasonsofsaltmeditations.com, and um, it's available in some local places. It's available at Kansas Originals and some local stores. It would be on Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble and those kinds of places. Well, we want to thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. That was Millie Horlacher. She is the author of her book, Seasons of Salt, Meditations. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling. 
but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A New Wrinkle, What I Learned from Older People Who Never Acted Their Age. And the author is Dr. Eric Z. Shapira, and he is a clinical gerontologist. And Dr. Shapira joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Eric. Hello, Steve. How are you? Well, it's good to have you on the show. I hope I don't get older. Um, I'm, I'm getting up in that baby boomer bracket. It's uh, I probably need your services right away. Well, you know what I tell people is that we're we're all aging, but uh, being old is a state of mind. Boy, that's for sure, and it's nice to have good health. There are those our age who struggle, even you know, at a, in their early sixties, which today is young. Yes, it is. Well, let's talk about your credentials, your background, your experiences, and then why you wrote your book. I practiced dentistry for over thirty years, and in the course of practicing dentistry, I was also a teacher of geriatric dentistry and special patient care. And I went back to school to get a degree in gerontology to give myself a little credibility in what I was teaching. And I had uh, the unfortunate experience of having a disc problem in my neck, which caused me uh, to have a non-functioning hand and left arm at one point, which uh, was very frightening. I had neck surgery, and that disabled me from practicing dentistry any further. And luckily, I had the gerontology degree and experience uh, to fall back on. I was in school for some five years and uh, had an internship with public health department. And I started practicing gerontology, which is just another uh, caregiving profession like dentistry was. I still teach dentistry, and I still teach geriatric aesthetic dentistry. And as I counseled people, if you will, families in transition, uh, did assessments, uh, cognitive and physical assessments on people and home safety evaluations, and people found out who I was. The biggest, the biggest challenge I had was to inform people what a gerontologist was. They can't even say it, let alone define it. <laughs> uh, once I told them that I was an aging specialist, and then again my friends would joke with me that I was a specialist who was aging, <laughs> which, which I am, uh, like everyone else, uh, I, <clears throat> I was able to... Um, define after many years uh, the possibility of writing a book because everyone I counseled said, do you have any other information on this topic? Do you have a book? And every time I gave a lecture in public about healthy aging or death and dying or what have you, people would say, do you have a book? Most of the books out there are um, a little bit different. They're written by physicians who talk about the more physical aspects of aging, and they're not in the trenches like I am, so to speak, counseling people who are in crisis. This is this is what I'm seeing more and more of, especially with the financial uh, problems of uh, today's um, environment, with the financial crunch, the stress that people are under, uh, is, which is causing physical problems for people and also emotional problems, and the elder abuse that exists out in the public sector. So. I'm seeing a lot of this stuff. I'm doing hands-on work with families, uh, children of aging adults, and adults who are getting laid off from jobs and still wanting to work in the workforce and uh, having to reinvent themselves, which is what I did. And so I wrote a book. A primer on aging. Yes. And obviously, this is a very emotional time for the individual who is struggling and also the family. A lot of people just don't know what to do. Absolutely, and the fact that people are so emotional about what's happening sometimes makes them totally irrational and incapable of thinking uh, in, a, in a rational way about how to solve the issues. And so that's where I come in. People will call me, and I come in and do an assessment on what's, what's the situation and uh, help them do a, make a plan, make a strategic plan on how to... Uh, get out of the rut they're in, face the challenges they're in, overcome the, come the problems that they're facing, the unmet needs, and uh, 
and get them into a space where they they have hope and they're happier and we have a win-win situation. So knowledge is power. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. people get into these situations and they can literally just shut down. They do. They do shut down. And uh, I was just, for example, I just um, I just had a call from um, a woman whose um, mother is the CEO of a company left to her by her husband, and uh, the company is failing in the midst of a financial crisis. And uh, they're worried about her because she's been drinking and she's cloistering herself. She's not talking to people. And they called me in uh, for help. They don't know what to do. So, And she's also affected by some mild cognitive impairment, which is memory beginning memory loss. And she knows she's got memory problems. And uh, the drinking only exacerbates that. So I have to go in and, and uh, counsel the, the, uh, the mother, the older woman involved here, and uh, try to set her straight and do some memory exercises and, and get her to see the what she's doing to herself is very harmful and it's also harmful to her family who are in much pain about it. Obviously, people haven't gone through the aging process before, so they need some kind of understanding and that's your role. Yes, and but we're all going through the aging process where the minute we're that's born. That's true. Yeah, we're all, it's just a matter of some of the uh, uh, experiences get more extreme. Yeah, that's that's the word right there. It's extreme. There's extreme circumstances. It's always something that there's a there's a nidus for for causing an emergency, if you will, um, where somebody notices Dad's losing the the car keys way too often, or he can't find his glasses, or he doesn't know how to put his clothes on in the morning, and all of a sudden it hits them that there's a a significant change in this person's lifestyle. And what do we do about it? How do we go about it? Or someone's losing their sight or their hearing, which is a very common problem today. Or they're having trouble brushing their teeth because they've got severe arthritis. And that's part of the aging process as well. About 68% of the population over 65 has some form of arthritis. And some people are disabled by it to the point where they can't function anymore, which which means they uh, they lose their dignity in a sense. But you want your readers to know that there is hope for a better tomorrow. Yes, I do. And yes, there is. And uh, the way to do that is to stay calm, number one, uh, try to find help with somebody like myself who can help them assess the problem or assess the situation with mom and dad or with themselves, and then make a significant plan on how to um, broach the issues one step at a time. And if they try to do everything all at once, it's somewhat overwhelming and and usually... uh, uh, success is not uh, not there. But you've had some people along the way, some, uh, we can call them elderly. I'll, you know, you talk about a client who was 94 that was a great inspiration to you. Why? Well, he, uh, he, had, all his, <laughs> he had all his marbles, all his faculties. Uh, I came actually to counsel his 96-year-old wife, if that's the person you're, you're thinking of that's in my book. And um, she kept asking him, don't you want to talk to Eric? Don't you want to talk to Eric? And he would say no. And then I spent an hour with her, counseling her for her concerns. And then he would come over and he'd start talking to me. And he'd talk to me about his life experiences. And they were fascinating. Um, and the, he'd tell me about how he's study, still studying French and speaks it fluently and how he plays a saxophone or a clarinet in a band every Friday with a bunch of uh, <laughs> elderly people. Wow, that's that's living life, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, he he's in the moment. And yeah. that's that's a real key for an elderly person is to live in the moment. That's, uh, that's all they have. And really, that's all we have, all Nothing. of us, no matter yeah. what the age. But yeah. especially that age group because they can get, I guess they can see themselves as not of any worth anymore, not fitting in, not of, uh, you know, benefit to anybody. Yes, that's exactly right. And uh, I had a quote from uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in my book that, that, that stated, people are like stained glass windows. They sparkle and shine when the sun is out, but when the darkness sets in, their true beauty is revealed only if there is light from within. And that... That light comes from an inner child, and uh, an inner spirit. And I talk about nurturing the inner child in all of us because it gets pushed down inside of us with all of the um, hassles and the nuances of living life, uh, the mundane uh, 
of having to work and pay bills and deal with illness and deal with the government and deal with all the issues that we're faced with every day. It's enough to uh, put a damper on, on enjoying one's life. And uh, if you can nurture your inner child and experience life in the moment and find joy and happiness in everything that you do, and, and even going out of your, getting out of yourself is really another thing that I tell people. Get out of yourself, help another person, make a difference to somebody else, and in the process, you'll find that you're making a difference to yourself. And I, I do this uh, type of thing uh, with people who are depressed and uh, are feeling uh, dysthymia, which is a state of blues, uh, because they're too wrapped up in their own problems to see that they have gifts to give away. We don't know what our gifts are until we give them away. If you can, if you can give your gifts away and share yourself with other people, you'll enhance your own beauty and your own state of mind. Jim Rohn, one of my favorite philosophers, said, the act of giving starts the receiving process. Absolutely. Let's talk about a few of uh, just a couple of your chapters. I'm looking at, uh, you got some interesting, I like your titles too, When the Music Changes, So Does the Dance, mm-hmm. uh, An Apple a Day, Who's on First, uh, Early <laughs> to Bed, Early to Rise, well, this one really jumps out at you. I'm sure it jumps out at everybody. Sex is not the answer. Sex is the question. Yes is the answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talk about that one. That's a great, a great chapter. It's, uh, it's about sex and intimacy. Sex is um, something that uh, is a natural, uh, I guess would say a need for in all of us. Uh, it's a source of intimacy, but it isn't intimacy in itself. I mean, uh, it's not all-encompassing. And I defined intimacy by breaking the word down, into me, see. So it's really giving someone else a view, if you will, letting them see who you really are in an honest and open fashion. I guess I've counseled people who are have met uh, as a, on a second, second chance uh, kind of a thing after being divorced or widowed at a later age, and they have... Um, their philosophy is, well, you know, we've done it once, we've done it before, uh, we're not going to mess around again, time is too short, we're going to get right to the issue, we're going to be open and honest and, and be intimate in that sense with someone else so that we can have a relationship again and be happy in that sense. So I've counseled, I'm counseling more and more people who are meeting online, believe it or not, um, and I wrote in the book about how to choose a partner uh, online or otherwise by defining you know, the traits in yourself that you like and the traits that you don't, the traits that you want in someone else and the traits that you don't, and then making a second analysis of actually what will you comp- where, where will you compromise in terms of what will you accept and what you won't. And uh, that's all part of being intimate with another person and uh, setting limits for yourself around sex and intimacy. But almost 20 to 30% of people over 65 now are, subjected to STDs, uh, sexually transmitted diseases, and, and uh, that's a statistic that most people aren't aware of because uh, after finding men, especially finding the erectile dysfunction drugs like Viagra, for one, uh, want to have sex again in later life. A lot of people in their older life are taking medications that create erectile dysfunction, so once men can uh, find an erection again and want to have sex, then uh, they want to date. Uh, problem is that they need to go back and take sex 101. And so I've talked about that in this chapter and how to, how to be preventive, how to protect yourself, what to look for, what to do, uh, how to be tested before you date, make sure your partner is willing to do that as well. And, uh, and all this has to do with intimacy and being open and honest with another person. We've got a couple minutes left, Doctor. Let's just talk about your title chapter is Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep. Literally, you may not wake up. Mm-hmm. And how do you deal with death, mm-hmm. right? Is that in the essence of part of our lives where we know it's soon, we don't know when, how do we deal with that? Yeah, it's very difficult. Um, I think we all have to take stock in the fact that, you know, the minute we're born, we're dying. Um, we don't think about it. Most people sublimate the fact that, that we're going to die and death is out there. We see it every day. We hear about it with people dying in the war. Uh, it's distant, so we're not. it's not close to us, but when... Uh, things hit close to home. Uh, you have a, somebody dies in your family, gets seriously ill. Uh, it's a significant emotional experience, and I define that by taking the first letters of the word significant emotional experience. It spells out C, so it allows us to see things differently. And then 
we can take steps to reevaluate our lives. Um, um, we've seen the, the movie, maybe you heard about the movie, The Bucket List, where two guys are dying, they want to go out and do everything they've ever wanted to do and the time they have left. And, um, and that's why I said we, we need to live in the moment and appreciate the life that we have and, and what's around us. Um, death is just another part of, of the life cycle, another part of the, the life process. And if we can look at it uh, as something that uh, is going to happen to us and come to accept that and look at it as something that will be hopefully beautiful in its process. Uh, I didn't have that experience with my father where it was very uh, painful for all of us and for him especially um, to have him pass. And then after years of of uh, not being able to grieve, uh, allowing myself that privilege, if you will, to grieve, I was able to understand more about the process and uh, and get by it. But uh, it's part of everyone's life. We need to, it's just like breathing, you know. It's part of everyone's life. We don't think about it, but we're doing it. And uh, the same thing with, with death, whether it's voluntary or involuntary, it's going to happen to all of us. We, we don't get out of this world, uh, you know, free, if you will, free of that that entity. So I think we need to, to look at it as a, a beautiful part of our life, a pro, an ending, if you will, but a beginning of another type of uh, entity for us. And in the process of doing that, we need to plan for that. We make plans to go on vacation. We make plans to work. We make plans to do things with our friends. We need to take stock in making plans for our death and how we want to be remembered by writing a legacy, by planning our funerals, by telling our friends how much we cared about them, and to include that as part of our daily mantra, if you will, knowing that it's going to happen at some point, be prepared. Uh, and basically, that's what I said in the beginning of the book. It's a be prepared kind of book. Be prepared for aging. Be prepared for the death uh, when it comes. Dr. Eric Shapira, tell us how to get your book, A New Wrinkle. Uh, my book is published by iUniverse. Uh, you can get it from the publisher, iUniverse.com. You can get it from... Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, from a new wrinklebook.com, uh, AgingMentorServices.com, which is my uh, website. So all those places you can get the book. And I hope people do, and I think it will uh, make a difference in their lives and it will add a lot to their lives and help hopefully uh, help define their lives and make a difference for them. Well, Eric, we want to thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you, Steve. I, I enjoyed talking to you. and. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. That was Dr. Eric Shapira. He is the author of his book, A New Wrinkle, What I Learned from Older People Who Never Acted Their Age. Dr. Eric Shapira, clinical gerontologist. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.